All right, 1 Timothy is the place of study for this evening. The letter to Timothy from none other than the Apostle Paul. And we find ourselves coming to chapter 3 and concluding chapter 3 this evening in 1 Timothy. I don't know about you, but over the last 10 years of my life, one of the greatest influences on me has been a growing affection for the church. A love for the church. I love to be around men who love the church and who give direction to it. And over the past 10 years or so, uh, there have been particular influences in my life that have focused my love and my affection on the church. And that's what we've been discussing in 1 Timothy. In fact, we've been talking about the leadership and the servant examples within the church, right? With the elders and the deacons. We've been focusing our attention, and tonight we will pinpoint our attention on the church, the body of Christ. My pastor in college, Pastor David Whitcomb, was a man who loved and lived for the church. And his example was received with anticipation of that day for my own life. Pastor John MacArthur, who was a mentor by example, and my boss at Grace Church, Tremendous love and dedication to the Church of Christ, which many of you have benefited from here in the area, from his preaching ministry, and so much more, those who are part of the family of Grace Community Church. A man by the name of Mark Dever has been a tremendous influence on me in recent days from Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. I've written several books to focus our love on the church, and then finally, A man named C.J. Mahaney has also driven me back to the sweetest place on earth, as Spurgeon called it, is the church. Nothing was more loved in the life of Spurgeon than his gathering with God's people each week. And though we know him as the Prince of Preachers, he was a pastor and a lover of the church first and foremost. So I desire to love and to love more the church of Jesus Christ, and that will be put to the test this evening as we come to Paul's words to Timothy and his concern for the church. We find ourselves in verse 14 at the conclusion of chapter 3. And let's just take a few moments here and read this and then we'll discuss a little bit of the introductory material and then we'll dive into these three verses for our examination tonight, for your study and for our edification together. Verse 14 says, I hope to come to you soon. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. But I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave or conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress or foundation or support of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, being Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. And this is the word of the Lord for us tonight. Now this passage is pivotal for our entire grasp of the letter to first of the letter of First Timothy. It's pivotal because it comes right at the heart of the letter. It's the conclusion of the third chapter. And you Bible readers who have spent much time with the Apostle Paul know the pattern of Paul's writing that he will, for the most part, turn a corner in his letters 
and he will have two separate emphases in his letter. No different in the letter to Timothy here. At the end of chapter 3, it's as if these verses stand as a hinge on which the remainder of the book swings. It connects the first three chapters to the final three chapters. And so it is foundational for our understanding. If we're going to get the entirety of the book correct, if we're going to grasp the purpose and the meaning of the letter to Timothy, then we need to have a solid grip and understanding on verses 14 through 16. It takes us from the introductory instructions that we've already seen about the church that have been given to Timothy, and it moves us forward into chapters 4 through 6 on the functional and very detailed instructions given to the church. We've been discussing in chapter 3 the appointment of elders, pastors, and deacons. And it seems reasonable that in Paul's mind, after concluding his discussion about the appointment of these men and the characteristics of these men, and in the case of the deacons, these women, he now concludes by going back to the foundational element of the church. Because if the church is to have proper leadership and servant examples, it must be about what God intended it to be about. The church must major on what God majors on and must minor on what God minors on. It is to be about His purpose, not its own created purpose. And when we conclude tonight, one of the concluding facts that flows from this section is that we don't have the privilege of defining the church for ourselves. Right? Even we as God's people do not have the freedom to say, well, our church is all about this. Or our church is all about this. We must go back to the Word of God. We must go back to the New Testament Scriptures pertaining to the local church in the New Testament age. And we must bring ourselves into conformity with what God demands of the church in general. That has been the cause of great confusion because under the title church, all kinds of self-styled ministries exist today. So it becomes difficult for us to identify what is the New Testament requirement and expectation for the church. And we'll get a little glimpse of that in this pivotal section in 1 Timothy chapter 3. This paragraph builds and it culminates the discussion on elders and the appointment of deacons. So we're going to examine the nature of the church in which elders and deacons are to minister, and we're going to do that in verses 14 through 16. Now, we're going to divide it into three sections, and we'll conclude with a poem. Even better tonight, huh? Because it's, a, it's an inspired poem. Three points in a poem was always the running joke in my household as a pastor's kid. And tonight we have three points, and we have a poem. So we're well on our way to having a great, a great time of study this evening. Now, we're going to divide this into letters intention. And this is the purpose statement in verse 15 of the entire letter. So if you wanted to mark in your margin of your Bible, why was this letter written? What was the intent of Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in giving this to Timothy? Well, here it is. He's going to tell you. And we love it when the author tells us the intended purpose. The Gospel of John does the same thing. Several other letters give us that opportunity as well. So we'll see the letter's intention, then the church's identification, and then finally the master's 
revelation. Okay, So the letter's intention, first of all, in verses 14 and 15. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, verse 14, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... And you'll remember that in the temptation of Christ in Matthew 4, you remember Satan kept using if statements, if you are the Son of God, and in the language that he was using, he was assuming it to be true for the sake of argument. Remember this? Maybe you don't. In this case, Paul is using a different grammatical tool, and it's if I delay, and I probably am going to delay. So it's a negative sense. It's I'm probably not going to get there. So I'm concerned to write things down for you because I'm concerned that I'm not going to be there to tell you in person. Paul's desire was to come and to set the church at Ephesus in order. But praise be to God that in God's providence, he was was concerned that he would be delayed and he was concerned enough to write it down, which has been recorded and preserved as the Word of God for us today. If the New Testament was just verbal, by this point in the church, we would have mass confusion about what it was that we were to be all about. God in His infinite wisdom recorded and preserved His Word and even this letter in the providential direction of the life of those who wrote it, even Paul, here the Apostle. Paul wants to come, but he is concerned that he's not going to make it. Now, Paul says in verse 14, and just notice this, I am writing these things to you so that, and I want to focus just on two words here that are important for us. First of all, these things, that's an important phrase for us because we have to determine what are the these things that Paul has written for the purpose that's about to come. Some would say, well, these things is just referencing the discussion about the appointment of elders and deacons. Others would say that we should have started chapter 4 at this point and that actually these things is future looking. He's actually talking about what's to come. I think probably the best understanding, and I've already given this away in my introduction, is that we see this both as before and after as the entirety of all that is written in this letter. He has written these things as in chapters 1 through 6. The second term that's important is you. We don't have a a translation that would give us the plural or the singular of the word you, right? So we have a difficult time determining if Paul is writing to, as we had in the South, the term y'all. See, y'all solves this problem. If our Bible is translated plural you as y'all, not only would the world be a better place, but it would be a much more clear place. So... Can I get an amen? No, I'm just teasing. Um, We don't do amens, but y'all know what I mean. So I'm just saying that y'all would make it clear. Well, we don't have a y'all here. This is a singular you. This is specifically referencing Timothy. He is writing specifically for the purpose of instructing one person who has been sent to set in order the direction of the church at Ephesus. So this is very personal. That's why you remember we call these the pastoral letters because they were written to pastors. And so it's a very focused intent and purpose. It has one person in mind. That person is Timothy. And it has a clear purpose for that one person. Now, practically speaking, just as application, as you study the Bible, 
you should always be thinking and reading with your mind engaged. And I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, should reference you back to, if you're involved with us in Sunday school, to the book of James. James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Paul is a living illustration of one who is saying, if the Lord wills, I'm going to go here, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. He has a desire. He has a direction. We see this in the life of Paul repeatedly. I wanted to come to you, but, some, but something hindered me. Satan hindered me at times, Paul says. Other events happened. We don't even know if Paul ever made it back to Ephesus. Though he desired to, there's no record of him returning to Ephesus. And when we come to 2 Timothy, which is the final letter that Paul wrote chronologically, it's the last thing that the pen of Paul was given to, the last letter, he makes no reference of ever coming to Ephesus. So he is living life in the providence of God, and he is a Christian who is planning and, and desiring his life in a Christian way. That is, there may be other plans for me, and if so, I want to make sure that I'm a steward of the time I've been allotted. So, I'm writing because I may not come, but I want to come. That's the introductory material, and now it moves us to the intention of the letter. Here is the intention of the letter. It is in the beginning of verse 15. If I delay, so that you may know, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And if we could splice this up just for the sake of our study tonight, the purpose of this letter was so that Timothy would know how to behave. This was a letter of conduct for Timothy. This was a standard of conduct for Timothy in his role in the local church. Now, most of us have grown up in homes where there were unwritten standards of conduct. They didn't need to be written down because the rod of correction helped us know what they were from an early, an early age. I can remember as a pastor's son, we always sat on the second row. Always. Second row, over here to the left of my dad, and I would be somewhere, you know, third or fourth seat in, and maybe I was so fortunate as to have a buddy come and sit with me during the service. There was never a statement about a standard or a code of conduct in the church service for my family. But, but, if my mom looked down the row with a certain look on her face, I was fully aware that the code of conduct had been broken. If, I chose in folly to continue on with whatever it was that I was doing that received the look of death, as we called it, the death stare. And following the death stare, and my mom may listen to this and she'll probably be calling me on the phone, I received a snap of the fingers. Then I knew I was doomed. It was all over. The only thing I could do now was save myself from further punishment. This was the code of conduct in my family. And in the worst moments of my life, because we were in church planning and in small ministries where I would be very distracting on the second row, there were those fateful days when my father would look down at me in the third seat and mention me publicly and my need to stop doing whatever it was that I was doing. And at that point, I felt like running for my life because it was all over. The code of conduct was clear. Well, Paul here is writing this letter to lay out a code of conduct for Timothy. Behavior. What is the church to look like? Right? This doesn't 
This doesn't nullify the heart. This is all driven by grace. This is all heart fruit. But still the church is to look a certain way. It is to be perceived as being a part of the divine commands. This is behavior. This is external. These are the concerns that Paul has for the ministry of the church. We've already seen some of them. That they establish proper leadership and servant examples. That they put away false teachers. And we're going to come back to that in chapter 4. That they pray. That they pray globally and evangelistically. And that they pray for leadership that is over them. That men and women respond properly to their time in the worship services of the local church. All of these things are a part of the purpose of this letter. That Timothy might know how one ought to behave within the church. So that is the letter's intention. That is the purpose statement for the letter. Now, moving, as we don't commonly do, into the middle of a verse, in the middle of verse 15, I want to focus our minds now, secondly, not only on the letter's intention, but on the church's identification, because he makes some very dramatic and important statements about the church. These are defining titles given to the church, and they're important for us to think about because they give us an identification. They give us an ID card. If we held up our church ID card, these titles would have to be there. It is the household of God, it is the church of the living God, and it is the pillar and the, and the foundation or the buttress, the support of the truth. Those are the titles given That is the identification of what the church is in the New Testament. So let's just unpack those quickly and have a look at what Paul says here. So the behavior that he is concerned about is within the church, and he defines it as, first of all, the household of God. The household of God. And that's important for us, because we've already seen the exact same word used repeatedly in the previous context, right? Where has Paul been talking about households? You remember, I trust, earlier in the chapter, he is concerned about the management of an elder and a deacon's household. That should be a clue as to what Paul meant by the Greek word that he used. The Greek words are the same for the church as it is for the management of the household for elders, and for deacons. Why is that important? Because he is not speaking here of a building. Paul is not defining the church as the house, as the structure, as the four walls and a roof of God, as the New Testament tabernacle, if you will, of God. He is not. He is speaking of it as the household, as in management of a household, a.k.a. the family of God. It's people. So understand this, the church is made up of people. We use the the name church as referring to a number of things. When I leave the home right now, and I'm going to study, Renee may say, where are you heading? And I'll say, I'm going to church. Well, church, I'm going to the church. That could be the office behind Tom's Donuts. That could be coming over here to the theater. That could be coming to set up in the pod or in the other rooms, but I use that locationally, and you do too. We talk about the church. 
We talk about going to church. Did you go to church? As if it's a place to be arrived at. But Paul here is defining it as the household of God, not as in a location, but in as a grouping of people. It is a family. It is the family of the one true God. That should be an encouragement to you. The household of God. The family of God is none other than the New Testament church and its local expressions everywhere on this planet. This speaks to the relationship of the church to God. And also, I think it's important for us to look over to Ephesians chapter 2, where this is used again by the Apostle. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul here in this phenomenal section of our Bibles, speaking of the riches of the mercy of God to us as sinners, he says in verse 18, For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens or journeymen, sojourners. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. It is people that Paul is concerned about. It is a family. Family of God is on the ID card of the local church. Secondly, then, we come to the second term in verse 15 of 1 Timothy 3. The household of God, which is further defined as the church, the assembly, the gathering place of the living God. The church of the living God. The church, as defined in the first phrase, the household of God, the gathering of God's people in the New Testament age, is the dwelling place of God. God's people are the temple of God. There is no longer a place where we go to meet the presence of God. He is here with us as we gather together. And He is with you individually as you represent as a believer, as a child of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So both the gathering, the church, 1 Corinthians 6, and the individual are seen as the church, the dwelling place, the assembly, the meeting place of the living God. Now, there are some confusing things in grammar, and I'm not an expert in grammar, I would never claim to be, but there is some curiosity here, and I I trust that you start to read in this way. When we come to which is the church of the living God, we should be asking ourselves, what does he mean by of the living God? How does of the living God relate to church? And in this particular phrase, this is a possessive concept. So it's not that this is... This is the sphere. The church is the sphere of God. It is the possession of the living God. In fact, we could translate this genitive this way, the living God's church. It's His. He owns it. He bought it with His own blood. It is the church of the living God. Now, the living God is a rich phrase, and if you're familiar with the Old Testament. It is all through your Old Testaments. I thought I'd reference just a couple in the collection of Psalms just because they're particularly familiar to us. But if we go to the book of Psalms, to the 42nd Psalm, 
You don't have to turn there. I'll do it for you. The 42nd Psalm, you can just listen to these references. Familiar. As the deer pants for the flowing streams or the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 84, the 84th Psalm, also references God as the living God, a defining phrase given to the one true God. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. In 1 Timothy 4.10, he is again referenced, For this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God. And this title is not to be taken lightly. In fact, if you were meditating on this section of Scripture and you were studying through this, it would be a good exercise for you to, to, to dwell deeply on the title of God, the living God. That is in contrast to all other gods who are dead, who are lifeless. Our God is in heaven. He is alive. He is present with His people through His Spirit. He has come and He has dwelt with us, God with us in the person of Christ, John chapter 1. He is living He is active. Our God is the living God and we are His church. He possesses us as His church. And then finally we come to the last phrase given or description given of the church. It is a pillar in verse 15 of chapter 3. A pillar and buttress, the ESV translates, of the truth. That's not a familiar word to me, buttress. Um, The pillar and ground of the truth I believe is what the authorized version uses. It is the word for foundation, for supports that would be put under a building to hold it up. Those of you who are in construction probably have a better grasp of this than even I do. This is the support mission of the church. It is not floating along in a sea of opinions, but it is to be about supporting and lifting up the truth. That is the mission of the church. Pillars would be used not to support as much as to lift, to elevate the roof of a building. And it's curious that because Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus that he would use pillars. Ephesus was centered by a temple to Diana, the goddess Diana, pagan goddess of fertility. The rituals were vile at the temple to Diana And yet the temple of Diana boasted 120 pillars of marble, some with gems and gold, holding up and elevating the roof of that temple. Each of the 120 pillars on the temple of Diana was a gift to Diana, who is not a living god, by the way, who is a dead idol, was a gift from a different king. 120 kings had given a pillar to lift up, to magnify the temple to Diana. The church is to be the pillar, first of all, of the truth. We are to be about exalting the truth, making it high and presentable and easily seen. 
This is our mission. It is our mission together to encourage one another that there is nothing besides the truth revealed to us in the Word of God and in the person of Christ. And it is our mission to the world around us that we exalt the truth of the Gospel in our great commission, which is fully endorsed through this mission of the church, to be a pillar of the truth, to exalt the Gospel to the world around us, to be a city set on a hill lifted up for others to see. So the church, it is the family of God. It is His possession. It is the church of the living God. It is His dwelling place. And it is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Now, buttress is foundational support. It is the testifier to the validity. It is the support mechanism for the truth. What a desperate situation we are in today where the truth is in no way supported by the church or by local expressions of the church across our country and all over the world. The truth has fallen on hard times. The foundation is crumbling. The support beams are weak. And the church is called not only to solidify, to uphold the truth, to buttress the truth, but also as pillars to exalt it and to lift it high. That's our calling. That is the title given to us. We are a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now, Pastor John had a great comment in his commentary that I read this afternoon, actually, right before I came over from my office. And it it was questioning us, how will the members of the church, how will the components of the church know that they are word-centered, that they are pillars and supporters of the truth? How will you know, how will I know, that Grace Church of the Valley is a pillar and a foundation for the truth to rest upon? And he gave these answers. They believe it. They believe it. That is seen in practice. If we believe it, then why would we not focus all of our attention on it? They memorize it. They meditate upon it. They study it. They obey it. They defend it. They live it. And they proclaim it. The church that is the pillar and the foundation or the buttress, the support of the truth, believes the Word of God. It memorizes and meditates on the Word. It studies the Word. It obeys the Word. It defends the Word. It lives the Word. And then it proclaims the Word to the world around This definition, these definitions, these identifications are the inspired apostolic identifications of the church. This is the identification of Grace Church. It's the mission of its leadership to establish and maintain this identification as being true here at Grace Church. We do not have the liberty to move outside of the definition given to us by the Lord, the head, the master of the church. It's his. He bought it and we serve him. And so we must set our we must set our vision, we must set our expectations on this identification. Now, we may be wondering, what did Paul intend for us to understand when he speaks of the truth? The truth. 
And I believe that the hymn that's given to us, the poem that follows, is a further definition of the truth. It is defining or elaborating on the foundation and the pillar of the truth. Because in verse 16 we see the Master's revelation, the Master, the head of the church, is revealed in what has commonly been known as the earliest hymn of the New Testament church. Paul here quotes it for us. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. This is the same concept that we found in verse 9 about deacons, that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is the same concept. The mystery of godliness is great indeed, and we willingly confess it. Now, for the sake of review... We understand that when we speak of mystery in the New Testament usage of that word, we're not talking about a Hardy Boy mystery or Nancy Drew mystery or a mystery novel or a mystery movie. We're not talking about mystery as we think of mystery. In the New Testament concept, it's not that we've got to figure out something that's not there for us to know. It's that in the Old Testament, something was not revealed that later then in the New Testament was given to us. So mystery was things that were promised, but not seen in the Old Testament, not revealed in the Old Testament, that then were revealed in the New. And so the mystery of godliness is the Gospel, that Jesus of Nazareth would be the promised one, that He would come and that He would save the Jews and He would save Gentiles and that the church would be in existence. There is no reference in your Old Testament to the church as in the New Testament church. Israel is not the church. The nation is not the church. And so the mystery of godliness is great indeed. Many things were unrevealed in the Old Testament that were now revealed in the new and here he elaborates on what it is he's talking about what is the mystery of godliness it was that jesus was manifested in the flesh that he was vindicated by the spirit seen by angels proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world taken up into glory this is the mystery of godliness now this is poetry and i i assume your translations help you know that setting it apart somehow maybe centering it This is poetry, and this is poetry that translation does an injustice to its beauty. I'm not a poet. To my knowledge, Renee has never received a poem from me uh, artistically showering her with my affection. Any poems? No, no poems. I didn't think so. I was hoping that maybe I had forgotten about that great poem that I wrote, but no, there's no poetry in in my mind. I am not that creative. But the beauty of this poem is... Undeniable. The parallelism that's given here is amazing. Each word that starts the next phrase is parallel to the previous first word in its form and in its look. The structure of each of these phrases, this is a fragment, it has no subject and verb, but the, the structure of this listing, this fragment, is perfectly uniform. And in English translation, we lose that completely. I think the best way to look at this is to see it as three couplets. So we're, we're going back to like, maybe you never even had it, but we're going back to some early literature class that you had where you remember what couplets were. That's two line sections, and I believe there are three two line sections. So 
The best way I think we can read this is, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Break. Second part of the poem. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. Break. Believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Three couplets. Three two-line sections for us to consider tonight. Manifested in the flesh, but vindicated in the Spirit. The contrast is that Jesus came, John 1, God came in human form, He was manifested in the flesh, and He was vindicated by the Spirit. The flesh and the Spirit both confirm His identity. We've been spending a lot of time in Matthew thinking about this. Romans 1.4 says that the Spirit vindicated the ministry of Jesus and the death of Jesus and His righteousness through the resurrection. Maybe your translation uses the word justified. It's the same concept. Vindicated. Authenticated. was the work of the Spirit in Jesus. So the couplet gives us contrast. He was manifested in the flesh. He came in flesh. And yet He was vindicated by the Spirit. I believe the capital S, Spirit, is the best understanding here. Second couplet. He was seen by angels... That is, he was seen in heaven and on earth proclaimed among the nations. Heaven and earth have known of, now have known of Jesus Christ. This is the mystery, this is the unrevealed mystery of godliness. That Jesus, who was seen by angels, would be proclaimed amongst the nations. Heaven and earth would know that he was the Lord. Matthew 28, 19-20 in the Great Commission. This is the mission of the church to proclaim among the nations the mystery of godliness. He was seen by both the fallen and the elect angels in heaven. He was ministered to throughout his ministry by the angels. We've already seen the angels come and minister to him in Matthew chapter 4 in our morning study. And he has been proclaimed among all people. And then the final couplet is that he was believed on, he is believed on in the world, and he was taken up into glory. Both heaven and earth have received him as Lord. So in all the world, that is in all created, in the created world, men and women have believed on him. They have placed their faith in him, and he has been received up into glory. That is, he has been exalted. Philippians 2. Christ humbled Himself. He came as a man, even obedient unto death, but He has been given a name which is above every name. He has been exalted. In His ascension, He was exalted. And ultimately, in His return, He will reign over all the earth. And every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that He is Lord. Right? So He has been taken up into... He has been received as the exalted Son once again. And so the beauty of the poetry is earth has received him all over the world. People have believed and in heaven he has been received as Lord. This is the gospel. This is the gospel in a nutshell. If you want an abbreviated poetic form of the gospel, this is it. And This was the song of the early church. So this is the master's identification. These are the essential truths the essential elements that are to be the concern and the heartbeat of the church. 
What good is it to have elders who are appropriate in character? What good is it to have deacons and deaconesses who are appropriate in character and walking with the Lord if the church is not about what it was to be about? And so Paul says, I'm writing this entire letter just to make sure that you know the behavior code for the church. What is the church to be focused on? And then he defines it as the household of God. He defines it as the church of the living God, the living God's possessed church. It's his, and it's the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And all of that is wrapped up. The truth is consumed and focused on the gospel. Christ was manifested. Christ was vindicated. Christ was seen by angels. Christ was proclaimed among the nations. Christ was believed on in the world. And Christ was taken up and received into glory. This is the truth that we must exalt. We must be pillars that lift it high. And we must be supporters that give it opportunity to be at work in our community. We are to be a foundation, a support to these truths. Say, in conclusion, what are some things that I can be thinking about from this passage? Well, first of all, we must rightly understand this paragraph to interpret the whole letter. So functionally, this is an important paragraph because it sets up how you'll read for the rest, I trust, the rest of your life, how you read First Timothy. You'll know now why you're, what you're reading is there there because of this purpose statement. Secondly, we must recognize we are not privileged, and we already mentioned this, to define the church as we want to. It's not ours to define. We didn't purchase it with our blood. It's His. It's the Master's. It's Christ's. And we must conform it to His definition, to His desire. Thirdly, we must set our desire on being and living as a church as the Lord of the church has designed and passed on through the inspired apostolic word. These passages are for us. Specifically for us. Specifically for the leadership of the local church. Specifically for me. For David. And these are clear passages that cannot be ignored. And then finally, and I think most pointedly from verse 16, we as a church must make much of the gospel. Right? The gospel is central. If the gospel is confused, if the gospel is blurred, if the gospel is left to man's opinion, then we have failed the task. How could we ever fulfill our mission to support and to exalt the truth, to take it to all people, to make disciples and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? How could we do it if the gospel came under reproach in our church. We must make much of the gospel. There is nothing more important than the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We must make much of the Gospel. The Gospel as revealed in the Word of God. 
In fact, in conclusion, turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Maybe it's Galatians chapter 2. Where Paul speaks to those who are coming and speaking a new or a different gospel. And I'm searching. And you can shout if you know where I'm going. Hmm. I'm not finding what I'm looking for. How about chapter 1? How about chapter 1, verse 6? And how about you get the uh, apple at the end of class for finding that? Thank you. I went to chapter 1 and only looked to verse 11 and didn't look backwards. So I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, a different good news. Not that there is another one, Paul says in verse 7. There isn't. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That is, the gospel of faith by grace. But even if we, that being the apostolic team, if we or even hypothetically an angel from heaven should come and preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema, accursed, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul makes it clear. The gospel is central. The fear of man must not cloud our defense and protection of the gospel. It is of the highest priority for the church. Well, that concludes our study, but I wanted to take just an opportunity tonight to talk about one particular and recent application of these principles to the life of our church. And many of you have heard about this, and so I wanted to read a letter that was written just recently in our own community to the membership of our ministerial union here in Kingsburg. Just wanted to read this to you because this has been sent out and these are, I'm sure, going to be discussed. And I wanted to read it to you so that you could hear it from me. Dear member or members of the Ministerial Union, with heartfelt appreciation, we at Grace Church would like to thank you for your kind interest and your receptive welcome of our new church. We are excited about the new beginnings here in Kingsburg and your invitation to our pastors and our church to join the union is kind and neighborly. As you may be aware, we have chosen not to become a part of the union and thought you may be interested in a few words of explanation and clarification. As a leadership team, we have discussed at length the implications and ramifications of joining the union. There are several basic concerns to which we have repeatedly returned. The heart of those concerns is that the union represents widely varying perspectives on crucial doctrinal matters. Significant differences exist regarding the way of salvation and the sole authority, total sufficiency, and complete accuracy of the Bible. While we affirm that minor differences should not cause disunity, we are equally convinced that diversity on fundamental truths, such as the way of salvation, is a necessary cause for division. It is our concern for doctrinal clarity that drives our perspective about the union. We have no desire to be personally offensive and no intent to be obstinate and isolationist. 
We certainly are not trying to cut off any personal interaction or discussion with any of you. However, our concerns about disunity on some fundamental biblical issues force us to question the validity and the biblical appropriateness of our involvement in the union. We understand God's word to teach principles of fellowship and cooperative ministry based on the truths of the gospel and the authority of God's word. So despite our appreciation for each of you as people, we feel scripturally bound to exercise care in our public cooperation. While we are bound by our conscience on this issue, we do not want to be known by what we are against or what we don't do, but rather by what we believe and live. We believe that salvation is accomplished by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No meritorious act could possibly earn our salvation. Instead, God declares the sinner righteous because of the faith that is placed in Jesus Christ as the sinless substitute who bore all of God's just wrath against sin. We want to carefully guard the clarity of that gospel message and joyfully preach it in our community. We want the Scriptures to be our only rule for our faith and our practice, allowing its principles and commands to dictate our philosophy. Even our decision about the union is rooted in biblical principles, principles our church feels we must be faithful to. While we feel that several other churches in Kingsburg understand the gospel similarly, others clearly do not. In order to avoid mixed messages or giving the impression that we all teach the same gospel, and have the same view of the Bible, our church would like to politely choose not to join the union. Our desire is that each of you understand clearly why we have chosen to not join the union, as well as to know of our friendship and goodwill to you as individuals. If you have any further questions or comments, please feel free to call us or stop by the church offices. We'd love to have lunch or talk with you anytime. For the glory of Jesus Christ, the Grace Church leadership team, and then it's listed out for them. Just wanted to give you a living illustration that there are times when, even beyond what we would desire, principle meets confrontation. And we have no choice but to stand, even in our infancy as a church, by what we know to be true of God's Word and the demands placed upon us to hold the Gospel as central to all that we do. 